Let's open our Bibles, please, the book of Isaiah, chapter 7. Isaiah, chapter 7. I'd like to pick up with verse 17. It will overlap with two or three verses, but I think it'd be necessary because it's a division in the 7th chapter of Isaiah. Verses 17 through 25 in this chapter have to do with the advent of the Assyrian. The enemies of God's people were coming upon them to uh, besiege them, to lay hold upon them, to battle with them. So we find that the advent of the Assyrian is in verses 17 through 25. And we've already covered down to verse 19, 18 and 19 long in there, but I want to just pick up with verse 17 because it's the beginning of the section. It says, The Lord shall bring upon thee and upon thy people and upon thy father's house days that have not come, something they hadn't experienced, from the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. Ephraim is spoken of in the Bible as Israel in a sense because uh, when the tribes were divided, uh, instead of calling sometimes Israel, Israel, the ten tribes, they'd call Ephraim and Judah instead of Israel and Judah. Uh, so it says, from that day that Ephraim departed from Judah, even the king of Assyria. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall hiss for the fly that is in the uttermost part of the, of the rivers of Egypt. In other words, he's going to hiss for uh, those enemies to come up from Egypt. He's using the fly as representative of the, of the forces that will come against God's people. And then the bee, it says... And for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. So Egypt and Assyria would come against uh, Israel. And they shall come and shall rest all of them in the desolate valleys and in the holes of the rocks and upon all the thorns and upon all the bushes. And so we find that this kind of a uh, coming in of the enemy comes against God's people. And this is historical. It not only applied to what happened historically in the Old Testament to Israel, but there's really a prophecy of the future when uh, the Assyrian will come against God's people in the tribulation period and symbolical of the uh, forces of evil during that time. So we find that uh, here it's talking about, let's just keep it to the literal historical uh, aspect of it. In the prophetic aspect, you can rather figure that many of these things will be fulfilled finally in the future. But here it happened historically in the book of Isaiah. And it says in the same day, verse 20, shall the Lord shave with a razor that is hired, namely by them beyond the river, by the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it shall also consume the beard. In other words, the hired army, a professional standing army, when it says that is hired, it refers to a professional standing army of the enemy. And to shave the one's head or beard forcibly, and if when it was forcibly shaved, was a great humiliation. So much so that it was inasmuch as if you stripped off their clothing or cut a part of their clothing away and showed their private parts. And that was how much of a humiliation. You have a reference that will show you exactly that. In Second Samuel 10, verses 4 and 5, you will have a reference that will show you that such 
a thing is that kind of humiliation. So the enemy will come against them and God will uh, do something for His people in protection of them. But it, this is the condition. These are the conditions that will exist. Verse 21 says, And it shall come to pass in that day that a man shall nourish a young cow and two sheep. And it shall come to pass for the substance of milk that they shall give. He shall eat butter. For butter and honey shall everyone eat that is left in the land. In the midst of the land. This is all they'll have to eat. It's from uh, calf, cow, and two sheep. So there will be poverty. Agriculture will cease. Foods that grow without the aid of human cultivation will be the only source that would be available to God's people. They would just be poor and not have anything and just barely skimp out a living by the natural uh, produce of the uh, little calf they have and a couple of sheep. And then in verse 23 it says, And it shall come to pass that uh, in that day that every place shall be where there were a thousand vines and a thousand silverlings, a thousand pieces of silver, it shall even be for briars and thorns. The vineyards that once produced and brought in profit. And up to now the land had been productive, but due to the neglect and lack of rain and the neglect of God's people and because of their disobedience to God, He permitted this great poverty to come upon them in the land. You know, God has a way of getting our attention, doesn't He? And, uh, you know, we hear all the things that are happening in our own nation today. For instance, uh, you know, the Fed's raised, what, another quarter percent on the interest rates. And so uh, things happen that affect our economy. And now the person that has an automobile financed and a home financed, and the first thing you know, especially if it's on a floating type of note where the interest can go up and down, he's going to pay a great deal more for his car, a great deal more for his uh, a home. And in, unless it changes and comes back down, it could increase again and it, will, it would be a lot greater amount of interest. So we don't have, some of those things we don't have any control over, but God has control over all things. Aren't you glad about that? Because sometimes we just don't know what to do about the situation, but God knows what to do about it. And you and I need to learn to pray about much about all that we do that is found in the will of God and that we keep in the will of God. And if we'll do that, then the things that we do, uh, He can bless it. And, and uh, so let's just try to basically stay in the will of God in all, all things. So uh, we find that uh, there would be a little increase and not any harvesting, that where there were a thousand vines and a, at, at, at a thousand silverlings, it shall be even for briars and thorns. The vineyards would not even produce anything. And then let's notice something else. With arrows and with bows shall men come thither, because all the land shall become briars and thorns. This invasion of the land. And the... With arrows and bows, they would come and they would hunt the wild animals because all the land would become briars and thorns. There wouldn't be anything left but the animals that they could hunt. And it says in verse 25, And on, on all the hills that shall be digged with a mattock, in other words, ready for harvest, 
There shall not come thither the fear of briars and thorns, but it shall be for the sending forth of oxen and for the treading of lesser cattle. We find that it would be fit for cattle only and the lesser cattle. So you can see how poor and how devastating things would be under these conditions. And you know it was all brought about. See, God was using the Assyrian to judge his people, and he would let this judgment only go so far. It's kind of like Job, you know. Job went through a lot of stuff. And I mean, was everything was going bad, but God says, you can only go so far. And he says, uh, touch not his life. In other words, you can't take his life away from him. And the old Satan came to God and he said, well, you know, he says, you've got a hedge built around me. So that's like God's people. Uh, God will permit the devil to just go so far and there is a limit to how far he can go. And I'm glad that God set some limits because otherwise the remnant, he speaks of a remnant. There's a son that's named uh, Sher Jashub, uh, Isaiah's son, that speaks a rem- uh, and it's symbolical. It says a remnant shall return. In other words, there would be saved uh, a small number out of the people. All right, now then, we're in chapter 8, we find the Assyrian is announced. Here's Jehovah's word through Isaiah the prophet. And the first section, I want to give you five sections in this eighth chapter. The divine instruction and, if you look at verse 1, Meir Shalah Hashbos. That's a pretty good name, isn't it? See it in verse 1? So it's divine instruction and the name of this individual, which was the son of Isaiah. And then verses 5 through 8, the Assyrian to come. Verses 5 through 8. And then verses 9 and 10, the answer of faith. And then verses 11 through 20, a word to the faithful remnant. And then verses 20 and 21, the coming great distress. So we're talking about Assyria. We're talking about an invasion. We're talking about God's people being put under pressure by by enemies. And we're talking about the fact that God permitted this and even instigated it, so to speak, because of their disobedience. It was like he was using Assyria to be a chastening rod against his people. And then he would permit this army to only go so far. And he put a limit there. And then he says, well, a remnant's going to be saved. There's a faith got to come out of this. Verse 9 and 10, the answer of faith, they have to believe that God will deliver them in spite of all the plans of the enemy to take over. And verses 11 through 20, we show how that there's a word to the faithful remnant that he will preserve out of all this trouble. See, God didn't promise us not to go through troubles, but he promised to deliver us out of all of our troubles. Paul says, he delivered me out of all my afflictions. He delivered me out from under the hand of the lion and the bear, like even David of old. And so you and I can expect deliverance. Now then, as we deal with chapter 8, I want to bring out some very uh, detailed things here in each verse because they're very important. Now, if you look at verse 1, we said it's the divine instruction and merher shalah hashbas. It's the last word in this first verse. And it means swift is the booty or speedy is the prey. Or in Simpler words, in making speed to the spoil, he hasteneth the prey. In other words, it indicates that uh, the enemy will come and hasten to the spoil of God's people. That's the name of this individual. And then 
this is the son of Isaiah, by the way. And the other son is named Sherejason. You look back in chapter 7 and verse 3. Notice. 7 and verse 3. It says, Now then said the Lord unto Isaiah, Go forth now to meet Ahaz, thou and Sherejason, thy son. And that means the remnant shall return. So, the one son means that the enemy would hasten to the spoil and that it would be a quick judgment, but the other son is predictive of a remnant that shall return, that God is going to permit it to only go so far. As I said earlier, aren't you glad that God set some boundaries or we would all be destroyed? If we all got people say, I want just what's coming to me. I don't want what's coming to me. I want something of grace. And I want something of mercy. And see, God's people, if they had what coming to them, they wouldn't have had a remnant that would return. They wouldn't have had a limit that would be there. And so we can apply this to see the, the physical and material of the Old Testament is symbolical of the spiritual in the New Testament, of, of God's people in the New Testament. The physical and material that pertains to Israel is symbolical of those things that happen to us in a spiritual way in the New Testament. Now then, uh, notice here. Let's take verse 1. And it's verses 1 through 4 that this divine instruction comes to, to uh, the people through Isaiah. And so, notice what it says here in verse 1. Moreover, the Lord said unto me, He said unto Isaiah, Take thee a great roll and write in it, write in it with a man's pen concerning Mayor Shalom Hashbos. You see that? It's four different syllables there. Mayor Shalom Hashbos. And this name means, we've already said, means swift is booty or speedy is prey. Symbolical name given by Isaiah at the Lord's direction, by the God's direction, to his son, to Isaiah's son. And it's prophetic in the indication that Damascus and Samaria were soon to be plundered by the king of Assyria. In making speed to the spoil, he hasteneth the prey. He would come in with speed and hasten to the prey. And that's the name of this son. And the Lord tells Isaiah to write it on a roll and write it with a man's pen concerning this one. That this is what's going to happen. That God's going to permit this judgment to come. It's kind of like, you know, Methuselah. God told uh, Enoch to name one son Methuselah. And you know what Methuselah means? When he dies, when when his death comes, it shall come, or the flood shall come. And the very time that Methuselah died, Noah entered into the ark, and judgment came upon, the flood of waters came upon the earth. It tells us, you can figure it out, I figured it out for you before, right to the same year of time. And we don't know, but what is the same day of time? But uh, it says, when he is gone, it shall come. And it, when he was gone, the judgment was, was did come. In fact, if you remember that Enoch walked with God, it says, after he begat Methuselah, 300 years. I tell you, if he, and he only lived, I believe it's 365, you can check it out, but uh, this is Enoch. But uh, Methuselah lived 969 years. But see, if 
if you were 65 years old and you had a son and God says, when this baby dies, the judgment's going to fall, you'd walk with God too, maybe. And you'd be looking every day to see if that kid had a cold or had any trouble, wouldn't you? You're going to see if he's going to live. And fortunately, showing us God's grace, Methuselah lived 969 years. Showing us that God's grace is sufficient, isn't it? And then when he did die, Noah was overlapping in time, and Noah entered into the ark in the 600th year of his life, and the flood of judgment came upon the earth, according to what God said in the name of that child, Methuselah. And so here, uh, this one is significant too. And so he was to write it on a roll. And to write, write it on a tablet with, with a man's pen, a great roller tablet, and make it clear enough that people could understand it. You know, in the Old Testament, uh, the Bible says that, uh, that you're to write so that he that readeth, that is on the run, may read it. In other words, the Word of God is to so, be so clear that a man on the run can't miss it. That even a fool shall not err therein, as the Bible says. So God's Word should be, by the way, too, to you and I, clear and plain. And preachers ought to be able to make it clear and plain. That is our job. That was the prophet's job of the Old Testament, was to make it clear. This is what God is going to do. In other words, don't beat around the bush about it. Tell it like God's Word says. This is what God says. It's not what I say or what someone else says. You and I are to preach, preachers are to preach the Word. And you as Christians, you're to believe the Word and accept it and read it for yourself and, and believe it just because God said it. It may not suit us. Do you think Israel was pleased with this, that, that Isaiah's son would, would be named? Your judgment's about to come. God's going to chasten you by the Assyrian. I don't think they were happy about that. But they were disobedient and brought it on themselves. Sometimes we're not always pleased with the message. You know, sometimes folks go out the door and, you know, Brother Joyce, I don't know. Little old mystery used to say, Brother Joyce, who were you mad at this morning? I said, not mad at anybody. She thought I was mad because I was laying down the law, you know. But that's the way preachers are supposed to do. They're supposed to tell what the Bible says. It's not my business to try to compromise it. It's not my business to say, now God, you were real mean to those folks back there. That's his business, isn't it? He, and he wasn't mean. He was just trying to teach him a lesson. And by the way, didn't we all also say that he's he set a limit and he's going to save them out of that trouble? And he did. But we have to show what it says. And so he was to write it clear and plain. I said I was going to give you a few details. I didn't mean that much, though. Look at verse 2. And I took unto me... Uh, faithful witnesses to record Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jerichab. Jerichab. So, he took two, it says, faithful witnesses to record it. Isaiah says, I want these faithful witnesses to record it. It's rather ironic because later on, I want you to see what happens (laughs) concerning Uriah. If you look in 2 Kings chapter 16, verses 10 through 16. Second Kings, turn back there, chapter 16. I want to show you. And by the way, Uriah here is called Uriah there. It's the same person. Uh, Second Kings 16, verse 10. And King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglapileser, king of Assyria. You have second, this is very important. Second Kings 16, verse 10. 
King Ahaz, the same one we're dealing with in the book of Isaiah. I'll give you time to get there. You have 2 Kings 16, verse 10. Now this is the same king that we're dealing with in the book of Isaiah. It says, And King Ahaz, this is King Ahaz, went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and saw an altar that was at Damascus. And King Ahaz sent to Urijah the priest the fashion of the altar. Now, this is Uriah, or Urijah, the priest. And he, the one we're dealing with in, in our text in uh, Isaiah 8, verse 2, that we're reading about. And he gives him the directions, the fashion of this altar and the pattern of it. You have verse 10. According to all the workmanship thereof, and Uriah the priest built an altar according to all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So Uriah the priest made it against the King Ahaz came from Damascus. He made it before he got back. And when the king was come from Damascus, the king saw the altar, and the king approached to the altar and, uh, and offered thereon, and he burned his burnt offering and his meat offering and poured his drink offering and sprinkled the blood of his peace offerings upon the altar, and he brought also the brazen altar. Now, this is what God had made. He brought also the brazen altar, which was before the Lord. And what did he do? From the forefront of the house, from between the altar of the house of the Lord, and put it on the north side of the altar. And King Ahaz commanded Uriah the priest, saying, Upon the great altar, the one he had just built, he built it according to the workmanship of that one at Damascus, that he thought was so grand. Now, listen. And King Ahaz commanded Uriah the priest, saying, Upon the great altar, burn the morning uh, burnt offering and an evening meat offering, and the king's burnt sacrifice and his meat offering with the burnt offering of all the people of the land and their meat offering and their drink offering and sprinkle upon it all the blood of the burnt offering and all the blood of the sacrifice. And the brazen altar shall be for me to inquire by. Thus did Uriah the priest according to all that King Ahaz commanded. Now, what did we say is kind of ironic that Isaiah said to choose two faithful men to pin this down when one of them, this priest later on, would turn out to be unfaithful in the sense that he would build an altar, this pagan altar, built according to the pattern and specifications of the one in Damascus and was established as the official place of sacrifice in the temple, in the place of the bronze altar, or the brazen altar, that uh, was presented and prescribed by Moses. That's substituting, isn't it? Ahaz put another altar in the place of God's altar. All produced by the natural mind instead of following the Word of God. See, sometimes people get the idea that we've got a better idea than God has. In other words, let's update this. God had an altar, a brazen altar, that He dedicated. But you know, this king, Ahaz, he says, I like that altar over at Damascus. My, it's elaborate. And he had Uriah the priest, or Uriah, both the same person, to build this altar and offer all the sacrifices instead of using the one God made. You see, that's what people do today. They say, let's build something that that the wor- that's more like the world and we'll do it that way instead of what God has prescribed. And man, I could get on a lot of things right now. And I'll just do it in a simple way with no antagonism and no 
arrogance or anything, but I will say this, and all of you are familiar with what I'm talking about. The Lord's Supper is a local church ordinance. It's not a community affair. It's not a nationwide affair. It's not to be taken over in the Holy Land via satellite, as it's been done in times past. It's a local church ordinance. I'll leave it there and you can make up your own mind about what's going on. So anyway, what I'm trying to say is that sometimes we think the world has a better idea. And that's what this King Ahaz thought. He thought, boy, I like all the decorations around that altar and it's so much bigger and and this just suits me fine. And we let the world set the standards for the church. We should never do that, brethren. The church ought to be God's. And we don't need to let the world start saying that this is what the church ought to be. Let us let God's Word tell us what the church ought to be. We've got so much going on in the world today that that uh, churches cannot can hardly can hardly be recognized from what the Bible says that a church ought to be. I'd like for us to keep you know what's important in a church today? Keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And when things come up that are questionable, different ideas, we've had some of them recently, we do the best we can to do God's will. And what we do, we try to all agree to do. And uh, if we make mistakes, we all made the mistake. Not just one of us or two of us. See what I mean? And I think some of you know what I'm talking about now as far as our parking area and stuff is concerned. We do the best we can. And uh, uh, if we take criticism, we take criticism. If we make mistakes, we've made a mistake. We just have to do the best we can and try to ask for God's leadership and guidance. And so um, I could say a lot more about that right now, but I don't think I will. Let's go on to this passage of Scripture. Let's turn back to the book of Isaiah, if you will, please. Uh, Chapter 8. So we got down to verse 2. It says, And I took unto me faithful witnesses to record Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jerobchiah. Now look, what did I say? It was kind of ironic because I took unto me faithful witnesses to record. And we find later on that... And by the way, this incident we referred to in Second Kings happens after Isaiah chose these faithful witnesses. But I wanted to show you that sometimes people do not always remain as true as they should be. Now, it doesn't, of course, Uriah has one excuse. He was obeying Ahaz. But on the other hand, uh, he could have raised, you know, he was the priest and he could have stood up and said, look, this is not right. I mean, that was his business to take a spiritual stand. Sometimes we have to take our spiritual stand and maybe have to stand alone in the midst of others that won't stand. We just have to do that. And so, Uriah, had he been the faithful witness that, that Isaiah thought he would always be and hadn't gone like we read in Second Kings and made this altar just because Ahaz told him to do it. And uh, You see, the king... And the priests are two different offices. You remember there was one king that thought he could take the place of the priest and God smote him with leprosy. So he didn't have to bow down to the king's wishes in spiritual matters. And this altar was spiritual matters. And so what I'm saying here is that this man, though he could have been faithful all the way through, 
turn to be obeying the king and yielding to worldliness in the spiritual aspect instead of remaining true to God. I'll put a great deal of, of, of strength and, and value in people that are faithful. I'll tell you, the Bible says, Moreover, brethren, it is found that a man should be required of stewards that a man be found faithful. And I, I put a great deal, God puts a great deal of value. Jesus said, Well done, thou good and what? Faithful servant. So, back in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 2. I said I might give you a few details, didn't I? Uh, and we're in verse 2. We've really gone a lot of places. Now, verse 3 says, And I went to the, unto the prophetess, and she conceived and bare a son. Then said the Lord unto me, Call his name Meher Shala Hashbos. Now then, this could well be the local aspect of the prophecy of Isaiah 7.14. We know it refers to the Lord. Look back at 7.14. It says, Therefore the Lord Himself shall give you a sign. Remember, Ahaz had refused a sign. And so God uh, chooses Isaiah, and He says, I'm going to let Isaiah marry a young prophetess. And she is a virgin when she marries. And... uh, the son that is born could well be the local fulfillment of that prophecy of Isaiah 14, though we know it refers to the Messiah himself, to Christ, later on. Because we have the proof of that in the New Testament. But so, if you look at Isaiah 14, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Well, Mayor Shalahashbosh was not called Emmanuel. But there was a temporary sign that was given to Ahaz in Isaiah's day and through Isaiah's marriage to uh, this prophetess who was a virgin. And this child was for a sign. Now, if you want to know that this child is for a sign, look at verse 18. It says, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord hath given me are for signs and for wonders from the Lord of hosts which dwelleth in Mount Zion. So Isaiah later on in verse 18 says, This Meher Shalahashbos and Sher Jasob are for signs for Israel. Now then, we know that there, the virgin shall conceive. God says, I'll give you a sign. A virgin shall conceive and bear sons. It shall call his name Emmanuel. Uh, Matthew 1 verse 23. Now I hope I'm not taking you too fast. But it refers... Uh, prophetically to Jesus that would be born of Mary, a virgin. But locally and historically, it refers to Isaiah's son that would be born as a sign to Ahaz. You see that? So it says in verse 3, I went in unto the prophetess, and she conceived and bare a son. Then said the Lord unto me, Now God named this child. Call his name Meher Shaul Hashbos. Now verse 4. It says, For before the child shall have knowledge to cry, My father and my mother, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria shall be taken away before the king of Assyria. What? Damascus and Samaria. Within a year or two, before the child could have the knowledge to cry, My father or my mother. We'll say from one to two years old. That within a year or two, Damascus and Samaria would be under attack by Assyria. Because God is saying that that's how long it will be. In other words, 
What did his name mean? His name in making speed to the spoil, he hasteneth the prey. In other words, it would come right away. And this son was indicative of that. The prophetess, probably referring to Isaiah's second wife, whom he had just married, this one we're talking about, because he already had one son, we told you in chapter 7 and verse 3, remember, then said the Lord unto Isaiah, Go forth now to meet Ahaz, thou and share Jacob thy son. So he had this first son, share Jacob. And then he had one here that was prophesied that the judgment would come upon the king uh, by the king of Assyria. And it would come at an early time in the child's life. Now then let's look at verse 5. The Lord spake, and by the way, verses 5 through 8 show us the Assyrian coming and bringing this judgment. Look at verse 5 through 8. The Lord spake also unto me again, saying, For as much as this people... Now, he's getting on to his people because they refuse to listen to him and they refuse the, the blessings that he's given them. And therefore, God is going to send the Assyrian. Now look. For as much as this people, Judah, refuseth the waters of Shiloh that go softly, and rejoice in reason the, and Remela's son, now therefore, behold, the Lord bringeth up upon them the waters of the river. The river refer, refers to the Euphrates. And it says, strong and many, even the king of Assyria. In other words, like the river Euphrates, the king of Assyria would come upon uh, God's people, in a flood, like a flood. And it says, In all his glory, and he shall come up over all his channels and go over all his banks, and he shall pass through Judah. See, the king, as the river Euphrates would come in full force, the Assyrian army, he shall overflow and go over, he shall reach even to the neck, and stretching out of his wings shall fill the breadth of the land of thy land, O Emmanuel, the breadth of Emmanuel's land, he would come in like a flood. And by the way, if you'll notice the last part of verse eight, it changes from a, the overflowing river to a bird of prey. He shall stretch out his wings and shall fit, fill the uh, uh, breadth of the land. So it changes from a river that comes in like a flood. The king is. King of Assyria is pictured like a river that's coming in like a flood upon God's people. And then the king is also changed to be seen as a bird of prey, stretching out his wings, shall fill the breadth of the land. He's seen in this way. In other words, the full force of the, of the Assyrian army. When you look back at verse 6, it says, For as much as this people refuseth the waters of Shiloh that go softly. The waters that God has... You know, God speaks of those in the book of uh, Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 15, when He speaks of the gate of the fountain. In Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 15, it says this, But the gate of the fountain repaired Shalom, the son of Kohaz, the ruler of the Mizpah. He built it and covered it and set up the doors thereof, the locks thereof, and the bars thereof, and the wall of the pool of Siloah. Remember, Jesus healed the blind man at the pool of Siloam. He told him, go and wash. In in John chapter 9, he says, go to the pool of Siloam. It's the same thing, Shiloh and Siloam. And he says, go go to that pool and wash. So Nehemiah 3, 
15, did I say? And then I think it's uh, John chapter 9, maybe verse 7. Verse 7. 9 verse 7. So you see, those are the places that are in reference here. And it shows that God's people refuse these good cool waters and these soft flowing waters and these satisfying waters. And because they refused and would not rejoice in them and be happy in them. Verse 6 says, For as this people refuseth the waters of Shiloh, then he says, Now therefore, verse 7, Behold, the Lord bringeth upon them the waters of the river, the river Euphrates, strong and many, even the king of Assyria. He's saying this river in its flood stage and in its force is representative of the king of Assyria and all of his glory. And he's coming upon, uh, will, he shall come up over all his channels and go over all his banks and he shall pass through Judah. You see, it's the people that are spoken of. He shall overflow and go over, and he shall reach even to the neck. And stretching out his wings shall fill the breadth of of thy land, O Emmanuel. Well, what else is there? Look at verses 9 and 10, and we'll take these two verses and close. But I want you to see verse 9 and 10, because this is the answer of faith. When all of this takes place, God says in verse 9, Associate yourselves, O ye people, and ye shall... Be broken in pieces. God says, you go ahead and plan. You get together. You get it all figured out. And you're still going to be broken in pieces. He says, and give ear. Listen to my word. All ye far countries, gird yourselves. You just do all the preparation for war that you want to. And he says, ye shall be broken in pieces. Gird yourselves. And ye shall be broken in pieces. It says again, verse 10 now. Take counsel together. And it shall come to naught. Speak the word and it shall not stand, for God is with us. You know what God was saying? In spite of all of Judah's enemies, and in spite of all their plans, they would be shattered because God was not going to permit it to go any further. Isn't that amazing? He tells, he says, you know, he tells the Assyrian, all his conspirators, all of his planning, all that's going on. He says, you just make all the plans you want to, but God says it's not going to stand. He says, I'm going to save a remnant. And he has in the next verses, and we won't have time to get into it, a word to the faithful remnant of what God will do for them if they'll take their stand for him. So we'll pick up with the 11th verse in our next lesson. We don't have any time for any more. And we'll show the encouragement that God gives His people in view of all this onslaught and all this flood coming in upon them to bring harm and and destroy them completely. Yet God says, you know, don't worry about it. They'll take counsel together and it'll come to naught. And says, speak the word and it shall not stand. They could speak all the words they wanted to. But God says, for it says, for God is with us. For God is with us. Isn't that the name Emmanuel being interpreted God with us? And so if God be for us, who can be against us? Make sure that you're on God's side and God's on your side and then don't worry. That's the last word. Let's stand and be dismissed in prayer.